Tom McGovern, let's go. I'm fuckers, I'm Canuckers, you're a fuckers 99. I'm the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax to New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me, yo, yo fuck, fuck Milton Freeman. Hey, and fuckers, welcome back to part two of the Clinton years, where we examine the legacy of Bill Clinton's presidency. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by the newly renamed Unfucking Overcaffeinated Members Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Brian, Awesome A, Asoke, and Asshole. The primary takeaway from this Clinton year series is the new Democrats' affinity for public-private partnerships and shift away from New Deal and Great Society thinking that defined the Democratic Party from the Depression era through the 1980s. It's a shift that persists to this day, as evidenced by the structure and achievements of the Clinton Foundation. While the doctrine of free market idealism might have been a right-wing invention, it became increasingly adopted and accepted in both major parties. While many on the political left have come to understand that free market policies have been detrimental to low-income communities in both rural and urban areas, to people of color more specifically, and the planet as a whole, the Clinton Foundation continues to stubbornly pursue market-based solutions to healthcare, education, disaster recovery, and climate issues with corporate partners in tow. It's an old dog that can't seem to learn any new tricks, but it certainly brings in the cash. The unquestioned belief in the power of free markets has created near total alignment on economic policy between the two major parties. The ensuing battle between the parties became more about maintaining traditional appearances on core social issues and resulted in the ridiculous culture wars of today. In terms of economic policy, the language might differ, but the results are very much the same. Democrats speak about hope and opportunity, progress, mobility, resilience and equality. Republicans talk about choice, freedom and economic liberty. Republicans continue to speak pejoratively about welfare. Democrats can't even utter the word. In so many ways, it feels as though the progressive movement is back at square one with only unions, civil rights activists, and democratic socialists advocating for economic justice, fairness, equity, inclusion, and human rights. Square one, by the way, was about a hundred years ago in the so-called Roaring Twenties when inequality was severe, women had few rights, voting access was limited, and corporate interests outweighed those of the government. The moneyed class was drunk on hubris, believing the ride would never end. Sound familiar? But this was also a time when socialists held a legitimate place in American politics. Socialism was sweeping Europe and Latin America, and it was taking root in the United States. Figures like Eugene Debs and Upton Sinclair were taken as serious reformers coming out of the First Great War. And while the Great Depression curtailed the movement and derailed governments around the world, many of the policies endured under FDR here in America, an unlikely champion of public welfare and government expansion. The left wing would continue to have its champions throughout the 20th century, such as George McGovern, and into the 21st with the populist embrace of Bernie Sanders. At each juncture, the country was presented with a clear choice and a progressive vision that was beaten back by corporate interests and wealthy elites. These inflection points appear even more tragic in hindsight as the country contends with the fallout from America's embrace of neoliberalism. While these policies have facilitated great technological advances and promoted U.S. economic hegemony for more than half a century, They've had catastrophic consequences for impoverished citizens in this country, the working class, citizens of the global south, and most consequently, the planet. Evaluating history is the ultimate game of what if. What if socialism took root in the 20s and 30s? What if McGovern ran a better organization and beat Nixon? What if the DNC didn't work even harder than the Republican Party to bury Bernie Sanders? Twice. 
In addition to reviewing the rise of Bill Clinton and the origin of his particular brand of economic neoliberalism, we'll examine yet another what-if moment for the progressives. We'll look at the ties that bound Clinton as governor, the class of new Democrats that took over the party and shifted it to the right, and the forces that aligned with and against Bill Clinton. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members W. Jeremy D., Tam Jam, Sam C., Ryan F., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Nick G. and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E., Michelle H., and Matthew. Chapter 2. Winner, Winner, Chicken Dinner. Let's begin with a tale of an on-again, off-again governor from the impoverished southern state of Arkansas. William Jefferson Clinton was governor of Arkansas two times. In total, he spent a dozen years of his career in this office, though his tenure was interrupted early on. We'll talk about that in a second. But it was enough time in office to have a demonstrable impact and a record worth reviewing. An honest assessment of his tenure as governor appeared in the Baltimore Sun in 1992 on the eve of the presidential election. From the article, quote, During his 12 years as governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton has improved the schools, kept taxes low, increased the number of jobs, improved civil rights for minorities, and maintained one of the cleanest environments in the country. Or he's presided over one of the worst educated states in the country, raised taxes on everything from groceries to used cars, watched his wages decline, failed to gain a civil rights law for his state's citizens, and allowed the poultry industry to stall state regulation of water pollution caused by chicken droppings." End quote. Arkansas voters seem to move from one party to the other fluidly and consistently. The governor's office alternates between the parties every few years or so, but I think it's fair to say the governing philosophy has stayed relatively the same since the Clinton era. The Sun's ambiguous review of his time in office is par for the course when it comes to Clinton. Like a shiny car on a used car lot, his governing style looks pretty great until you drive it off the lot. According to U.S. News, Arkansas's ranking on key metrics today paints pretty much the same picture as when Clinton left office. 49th in healthcare. 41st in education. 41st in economy. 43rd in infrastructure. 48th in crime and corrections. 30th in natural environment. And one final metric that seems pretty positive on the surface. 14th in fiscal stability. Now for shits and giggles, let's set these figures against Massachusetts. Second in healthcare. Second in education. Fifth in economy. 42nd in infrastructure. Fourth in crime and corrections. Fourth in natural environment. And 43rd in fiscal stability. The big stuff is obvious, but the most revealing figure is actually that part about fiscal stability. How can a state as impoverished, undereducated, and underdeveloped as Arkansas crush a state like Massachusetts in terms of fiscal stability? Well, this metric is a composite number. It's made up of the size of the state's pension fund liability and its ability to balance a budget. So a low pension liability is a reflection of small wages and public retirement savings. And a budget that is simple and easy to balance is more indicative of a state that offers little in the way of social welfare and government assistance. So that's the gubernatorial legacy of Clinton's Arkansas. Now, despite these dismal statistics, Bill Clinton was able to craft a pretty compelling narrative surrounding his ability to transform the economy of his home state. For 12 years, he's battled the odds in one of America's poorest states and made steady progress. Arkansas is now first in the nation in job growth. Even Bush's own Secretary of Labor just called job growth in Arkansas enormous. This was the message that he would run on promising to usher in a wave of economic reforms that would supercharge America's growth in the post-Cold War era. A technocratic and free market approach to leadership and just the breath of fresh air the so-called New Democrats were looking for. And there were a handful of small successes that the Clinton team promoted vigorously to champion this new vision. Now, before we get to those anecdotes and his free market vision, there was another important lesson that Bill Clinton learned along the way that has to do with that brief interruption in tenure we talked about before. Tell me a story, tell me a story, tell me a story, remember what 
This is one of those formative tales, like George Washington and the Cherry Tree, or young Abe Lincoln walking miles to give customers at the general store their change, earning him the nickname Honest Abe. Except this story is verifiable and true. Quote, the Arkansas system had always been to find some good young people and encourage them to work on the local level. The system kind of weeds them out. And out of that comes a U.S. state senator or a governor. It's like a horse race. You back three or four, so you always get a winner. End quote. These are the words of Don Tyson, Arkansas kingmaker and the head of the Tyson Chicken Empire, now Tyson Foods, a $50 billion global conglomerate. Don Tyson passed away in 2011, but for decades, he was the head of the company and brought it to $10 billion in revenue before his retirement. Don Tyson determined who rose to elected office and who stayed in elected office. Bill Clinton would learn this the hard way. So Don Tyson was a critical backer of Clinton in 1976 when he ran and won the seat for state attorney general. After losing a congressional campaign prior, the young Rhodes Scholar was finally on his way. He was the favorite in the 78 gubernatorial election, but before he could sew up the nod from Tyson again, he had to make a promise. Here's an excerpt from an old New York Times Magazine article on the pair's relationship. Quote, before Tyson made his gubernatorial choice for 1978, he posed a question. In the relentless drive of expansion and acquisition that would make Tyson Foods the largest poultry processing company in the world, Tyson faced a serious obstacle. In recent years, most other states had raised their legal truck weight limits from about 73,000 to 80,000 pounds. Arkansas, though, still stuck to the old limit, which put the state's poultry and trucking companies at a disadvantage with their out-of-state competitors and cost them millions of dollars. Would a Governor Clinton take care of that problem? Candidate Clinton, recalls Tyson, said he'd be happy to, end quote. It's at this point things start to get a little murky, and chatter developed around Clinton's wife playing fast and loose with friends of Tyson's and certain investment schemes. That story's for another day. But suffice to say, a dicey commodities investment, typically reserved for very wealthy, very well-heeled, savvy investors, netted Bill and Hillary a 10,000% return on a very modest investment. Dumb luck? Maybe. But this and future investments would loom large over the Clinton finances. But it wasn't the biggest lesson the Clintons learned from this period. Once in office, Clinton gave up on the trucking initiative that he promised Don Tyson he would take care of. So when re-election time came, Tyson pulled his support and the ambitious young Clinton lost his bid to return to the governor's mansion. A few things about this moment in time. First off, on his own accord, Clinton fought hard to regain his seat in the next election. Then he pushed through Tyson's trucking request and brought him back into the fold. The relationship between the men would endure from this point forward, built on the understanding that one does not fuck with moneyed interests, a lesson the Clintons would carry with them the rest of their careers. Chapter 3. Microfinance as a Macro Policy the new Democrats were on the rise. The resounding defeat of Jimmy Carter led to two terms under Reagan, and George H.W. Bush was looking to continue the legacy. Young guns in the party were looking to make a name for themselves, to introduce their newfound embrace of the free markets, and show that Democrats could be tough. And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! This new breed of Democrat looked to break from the old guard in every way, so they formed a new coalition called the DLC, which stood for Democratic Leadership Council. Progressive politicians of the day referred to the DLC as the Democrats of the leisure class, a reflection of the predominantly Ivy League white male composition of the bunch. Pardon me, would you have any gray poupon? The group included upstarts like Richard Lamb, Michael Dukakis, 
Jerry Brown, Paul Songus, Dick Gephardt, Bill Bradley, Gary Hart, and Tim Wirth, many of whom shared what Lily Geismer, in her book Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality, calls a, quote, commitment to meritocracy and technocratic solutions to social problems, end quote. The concept of doing well by doing good is the central theme of the exposition by Geismer that the new generation of governance can be a series of win-win policy propositions. Quote, Clinton used it to describe both his administration's approach of enlisting the private sector to address poverty domestically and using free trade and globalization to promote freedom, democracy, and human rights around the world. Beginning in the 1970s, this brand of Democrats consistently advocated that the future of both the economy and the Democratic Party lay in shoring up the entrepreneurial, post-industrial economy and its college-educated, non-unionized workforce, end quote. There were differences in the approach that the New Democrats took compared to the burgeoning hardline neoliberal Republicans of the era. As Clinton assembled advisors, peers, and colleagues, they collectively began to paint a picture of what was to come. People like close friend and fellow Rhodes Scholar Robert Reich, an early longtime friend of Bill Clinton, who was becoming a noted economic theorist and would play a central role in Clinton's presidential administration. Here's Geismer on Reich. Quote, Reich's industrial policy did, however, mark a key departure from the Keynesian model and its focus on stimulating demand. Instead, Reich emphasized increasing investment in the private sector to create productivity. Unlike conservatives like Milton Friedman, hold for it, Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! who emphasized expanding capital and letting the invisible hand of the market rule without government oversight, Reich argued that the government should direct the investment and direct it toward high-tech industries, end quote. Some criticized Reich as a central planning socialist. Unions, on the other hand, saw him as a threat toward organized labor. It was his focus on high-tech so-called sunrise industries that appealed to the New Democrats. But where Reich believed that promoting such industries was a pathway to increasing global competitiveness and opening new markets for growth, he also believed in big government direction, regulation, and domestic spending that would return to benefit marginalized populations. Social justice was the outcome that Reich desired by way of GDP growth. The New Democrats would adopt mainly the first half of this proposition and wind up ignoring the second, more critical aspect of growth and prosperity, the people. The organizing forces behind the New Democrat movement began to alter the language of the party much in the same way the Southern strategy altered the language of Republicans, as famously revealed by strategist Lee Atwater. For the Democrats, it was important to move away from the Great Society and New Deal language that conflicted with the patriotic opportunism of the Reagan era. Words like redistribution, welfare, and fairness became anathema and would be replaced by platitudes like rebuilding, opportunity, investment, and expansion. So recall from chapter one when we spoke about the Clinton Foundation taking a successful concept that worked because of an alignment of stars and then applied it to every aspect of the work that they do? Their success in driving down the price of HIV AIDS medication in African nations led the Clintons to believe that political persuasion of a former U.S. president and cooperation with private companies and NGO health organizations would work in scenarios as diverse as climate change and poverty initiatives. Similarly, when Bill Clinton was looking for smart new ideas to alleviate poverty in his home state of Arkansas, he seized on a microfinancing concept that had delivered stunning results in Bangladesh. I know, but bear with me, because this would be a hallmark of his tenure in the governor's mansion, the Oval Office, and beyond. A quick aside and editor's note. A great primer on this next section is our second most popular episode titled The Economics of Racism. The episode destroys myths about banking and finance in predominantly black communities post-Reconstruction. Since the conclusion of the Civil War, countless prominent figures in both civil rights and the political and banking establishments have tried to solve issues of system poverty through access to credit, black-owned banks, and community development programs, none of which attacked the underlying cause of economic disenfranchisement of the system, i.e. racism. Good call, Manny. Thank you. Well, in the 1970s, another such endeavor was established in Chicago with good intentions and a relatively successful vision. It was called Shore Bank Corporation. 
ShoreBank was designed to leverage deposits within a community of color in service of small economic development programs. What made ShoreBank successful where others had failed was experienced leadership that kept a tight hold on deposits, credit, and investments. Solid old school banking practices with human underwriting, compassion, and discipline. And most importantly, it was small and manageable. ShoreBank's success began to attract attention from large funders, such as the Ford Foundation, that sought to supercharge the model and develop it in other parts of the country and the world. At Ford's request, the team from ShoreBank met with another star project in their portfolio called Grameen Bank, founded by an entrepreneur and economist named Muhammad Yunus. His vision specifically was microfinance. Loans to individuals in peer groups responsible for paying back these small loans at very high interest rates. Women in rural communities who could purchase sewing equipment to expand their output, restaurant equipment and supplies, tools, anything to increase production and encourage entrepreneurship among a class of citizens previously denied economic opportunities. As Geismer writes, quote, Grameen experiences almost from the start a 98% on-time repayment and less than 1% of borrowers defaulted. These results were especially impressive given the bank's high interest rate. By 1982, Grameen had a presence in over 480 villages and extended loans to 25,000 borrowers. Eunice found that women did not just make payments more regularly, but also used the funds in more responsible ways, end quote. So as Geismer tells it, when the Clintons got wind of the success of Grameen and understood the domestic possibilities through companies like Shore Bank, a light bulb went off. To break from the old guard and welfare state label of the Democratic Party, Clinton had been on the hunt for ways to reform welfare and spur economic development in his state, something that could provide a model platform for his loftier national ambitions. He saw what many in the foundation world saw. Microfinance was a panacea. Credit was the path to prosperity, turning every poor person into an entrepreneur. Giving them access to credit to fuel startup businesses would keep them off the welfare rolls, get people to work, and spark growth and development. Healthcare? Nah. Education? Who needs it? Credit is the cure for what ails you. Early on, Ron and Shorebank gained quite a bit of attention for catalyzing economic development on Chicago's South Side. And one of the people who found Ron's success in community banking intriguing was someone I know quite well, Bill Clinton. He invited Ron and the bank to collaborate on the creation of the Southern Development Bank Corporation in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. And as a result, new businesses and new jobs helped transform the economy of rural Arkansas. Throughout his entire career, Ron has built strong public-private partnerships. With the success of ShoreBank and the endless hours he's contributed to numerous nonprofits, he's demonstrated that a for-profit institution can satisfy its investors' and customers' goals and at the same time benefit the community, the environment, and the public good. Clinton invited the Shore Bank and Grameen crews to Arkansas to set up shop and establish a micro-lending organization called the Good Faith Fund. Quote, mirroring Grameen Bank's famed model, writes Geismer, GFF adopted a peer lending system where four to six people created a group and were collectively responsible for paying back the loan. GFF required that the loan be paid back on a weekly installment system at an 11% interest rate. And although lower than the 20% interest rate Grameen charged, it was still significantly higher than most conventional loans in the U.S. In fact, it was the maximum allowed under Arkansas's usury laws, end quote. How's that working out for you? Yeah, it didn't work. Part of the issue in rural Arkansas as compared to Bangladesh was population density. While it was reasonable to assume that a woman in a densely populated village could expand a sewing or a food preparation business, the sparsely populated rural areas in Arkansas were missing a key ingredient to entrepreneurial success, customers. And because it leveraged a peer lending operation, the high amount of defaults made the peer group model falter as well. For my money, here's the kicker and the economic lesson. As Geismer notes, quote, in the Arkansas context, Eunice and other GFF architects overestimated the interest in entrepreneurialism and small business ownership in the Pine Bluff area. Staffers quickly discovered 
the majority of residents still preferred wage work and their old factory jobs to self-employment, end quote. This was the part of the new Democrat ethos. No welfare without work. No work available? Become an entrepreneur. No customers? Not our problem. See, it was a 50-50 proposition to the new Democrats who truly bought into small microfinance programs on the other side of the planet. Half of the equation was a genuine belief in the neoliberal model of free markets. The other half was the ability to appear tough on welfare recipients. I want to end welfare as we know it and restore dignity and self-esteem to every American. Nothing could be more reflective of an antipathy toward the poor and working class in this country than to scold them into either becoming a business owner and an entrepreneur or to get lost. But as much as the new Democrat mantra was to appear tough on welfare in this new assault of the working poor, it would pale in comparison to their desire to appear tough on crime. Lock your door and take a bite out of crime. Chapter 4. Between Sunshine and Rain, a Rainbow Coalition. One of the things I love about Geismer's analysis is that she paints a picture of the tension that existed in the party at the time. We recently talked about the Eric Cantor moment after the Obama election, where he gathered House Republicans and chastised them for laying in the fetal position. Obama's victory at the time was seen as such a resounding and wholesale rebuke of the Republican policies that people thought the GOP was officially dead. Likewise, the Reagan revolution was seen in a similar light in the late 1980s. Carter was made to look like a speed bump on the path to progress. The party of LBJ and FDR was remote, weak, and anachronistic. It would require a complete reimagining of the party if Democrats were ever to find their way back into power. But first it had to reconcile its past and find a way to beat back the vestiges of everything that had previously mattered to Democrats and helped the country, by the way. All of the gains from the civil rights movement, Johnson's Great Society and FDR's New Deal were on the shoulders of an unlikely figure in charge of a colorful coalition. But the genius of America is that out of the many, we become one. Providence has enabled our paths to intersect. His foreparents came to America on immigrant ships. My foreparents came to America on slave ships. But whatever the original ships, we're in the same boat tonight. Now, we've addressed a few what-if moments in the past, inflection points in history that had significant consequences. Most recently, what if the Democratic establishment had coalesced behind Bernie Sanders and accepted him as the torchbearer for the party and his revolution as the real deal? Well, to me, a seemingly forgotten piece of Democratic history was just how prominent Jesse Jackson was as a political force in the United States in the 80s and early 90s. At the Democratic National Convention in 1988, Bill Clinton would have his big coming out, delivering a speech that he hoped would place him firmly in the national spotlight and make him a contender in 1992. Very few thought that Bush could be beaten in 88. And the so-called New Democrats really hadn't solidified their brand as of yet. Though key figures like Al Gore and Dick Gephardt were on the primary ballot, the real battle was between Michael Dukakis and Jesse Jackson. This was truly the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party, and Dukakis getting trounced in the general would only serve to embolden the newly formed DLC that the party needed to move to the right or risk annihilation forever. Bill Clinton was hoping to make a name for himself and be seen as the heir apparent to the party as he traveled the nation promoting his ideas of ending welfare as we know it, being tough on crime, reinvigorating the economy, and opening global markets. But lost in this telling is the competing visions at the time and the eerily similar nature of the party's treatment of Jackson and Bernie Sanders more recently. Bill Clinton's speech, by the way, was a disaster. It was long and meandering, boring, and he was ridiculed as not ready for prime time for many. And when compared to the soaring rhetoric of Jesse Jackson, it seemed even more plodding and amateurish. But Michael Dukakis was offering the country stable, liberal, soft intellectual leadership. The Republicans would have a field day painting him as a weak liberal who looks stupid in a helmet. Look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. 
Jackson, on the other hand, was offering a full-throated progressive vision for the nation that scared the shit out of Republicans and Democrats alike. Here are a few highlights from his 1988 convention speech outlining progressive policies, and let me know if any of them sound familiar, like voting access. But a John Conyers bill, universal, on-site, same-day registration everywhere. DC statehood. A commitment to DC statehood and empowerment. DC deserves statehood. Free education and universal health care. At the schoolyard, where teachers cannot get adequate pay and students cannot get a scholarship and can't make a loan, common ground. At the hospital admitting room, where somebody tonight is dying because they cannot afford to go upstairs to a bed that's empty, waiting for someone with insurance to get sick. We are a better nation than that. We must do better. Economics that favor the poor. So they engaged in reverse Robin Hood, took from the poor, gave to the rich, paid for by the middle class. We cannot stand four more years of Reaganomics in any version, in any disguise. Equal pay for equal work. We must never surrender to inequality. Women cannot compromise ERA or comparable worth. Women are making six to six on the dollar to what a man makes. Women cannot buy meat cheaper. Women cannot buy bread cheaper. Women cannot buy milk cheaper. Women deserve to get paid for the work that you do. It's right and it's fair. And disability rights. The only justification we have for looking down on someone is that we're going to stop and pick them up. But even in your wheelchairs, don't you give up. We cannot forget 50 years ago when our backs were against the wall, Roosevelt was in a wheelchair. I would rather have Roosevelt in a wheelchair than Reagan and Bush on a horse. Don't you surrender and don't you give up. Jackson had been a prominent national figure for many years, so everyone knew what he was capable of. And even overcoming a speech impediment, Jackson was a firebrand of an orator, the likes of which is rarely seen at this level of political life. The Dukakis people knew this as well, which is why they were able to work in conjunction with the convention organizers to push Jackson's speech late into the night and out of primetime. And by the way, when early favorite Gary Hart withdrew from the race due to a sex scandal, the race really came down to Jackson and Dukakis as Gore and Gephardt only earned a smattering of delegates. And it's amazing in hindsight how much of a real race this was. While Dukakis did edge Jackson out 1427 to 1406 in delegates, this was at a time when the convention still mattered and delegate trading on the floor could still determine the outcome. Jackson earned 7 million raw votes to Dukakis's 10 million, but the other candidates immediately all fell in line behind Dukakis out of fear of Jackson's radical rhetoric. At a minimum, the Jackson camp believed that his showing was certainly enough to earn him a spot on the ticket as the vice presidential nominee, but even this was a bridge too far, and Texas Senator Lloyd Benson was chosen instead. Benson, if brains were dynamite, you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose. <laughs> so back to our buddy Bill. The reason the 88 campaign was such a pivotal time for the Arkansas governor was that Republicans were able to exploit Dukakis's perceived weakness on crime. Law and order had become a central theme in the Republican narrative since Nixon, and the ever-escalating war on drugs and fear-mongering in the media and Republican messaging exacerbated the contrast between Dukakis and Bush. For those old enough to remember, many consider the now-infamous race-baiting Willie Horton ad to be the seminal moment in the 88 campaign that doomed Dukakis. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. 
One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. So Bill Clinton made what at the time was considered a huge gamble as a Democrat. He decided to out-tough the tough-on-crime Republican Party. See, the Clinton team believed that the future of the party was among white suburban voters, or so-called Reagan Democrats. And in his scathing book on Clinton's relationship with black America, titled Super Predator, Nathan J. Robinson made this observation of Clinton's political calculus. Quote, because black voters were reliably loyal to the party, there was nothing to gain electorally from the pursuit of racial equality. The irony, of course, is that this meant selling out the party's strongest supporters precisely because of the strength of their support, end quote. Robinson dedicates an entire chapter of his book to the moment that Clinton seized upon to one-up the Republicans and put to rest the idea that Democrats were soft. In it, he details how Clinton called for the execution of Ricky Ray Rector, an inmate who committed heinous murders that culminated in him executing the officer he was voluntarily surrendering to. Rector then tried to kill himself, and after failing to do so, he had surgery to repair his head wound, and doctors essentially performed a full frontal lobotomy on him. It was very well known that Rector was psychologically impaired prior to his deeds, and that the surgery left him with the mental capacity of a small child. Very few believed that he would receive the death penalty as a result of this, and time and again, both the courts and the parole board agreed that Rector was wholly incompetent and completely unaware of time, his surroundings, or even reality. Here's Robinson again. Quote, as Rector's execution date approached in 1992, Clinton was fighting for his political life. The New Hampshire Democratic primary was about to be held, and Clinton was facing a scandal that threatened to derail his presidential candidacy. An Arkansas woman named Jennifer Flowers had come forward to allege that she and the governor had engaged in a 12-year affair and that she had the audio tapes to prove it, end quote. By this time, Clinton had already reversed course during his tenure, reducing the number of commutations and increasing the number of scheduled executions. His reputation was already solidified, but Clinton believed the rector decision would forever put to rest any talk of softness toward criminals. Despite calls from friends, colleagues, party members, and even an appeal from Jesse Jackson directly, Clinton not only moved forward with the execution, but left the campaign trail to oversee it personally. A rare move that served the exact purpose that was intended. Robinson gives a chilling detail of Rector's final moments to illustrate how detached from reality Rector was. Quote, when he had his last meal, Rector set the dessert aside for later, even though there wouldn't be a later, end quote. Amnesty International was quoted saying Clinton wasn't dying to be president, but he is killing to be president. By this point, the DLC was firmly behind Clinton, and he was heavily involved in crafting its platform for the election. As Geismer writes, quote, playing to the racialized fears of many white moderates, the DLC adopted an even more punitive position on crime, calling for the heightened mandatory minimums for gun-related crimes and military-style boot camps for young first-time offenders convicted of nonviolent crimes. The platform also asserted the importance of promoting strong family values, strengthening the heteronormative two-parent family, and intensifying child support laws and access to daycare." End quote. Now, recall from our discussions about Bernard Harcourt's book, The Illusions of Free Markets, how this approach to criminal justice and criminalizing poverty very closely aligns with the free market ideology of neoliberalism. The idea that the only realm government can and should be effective is in the punitive and carceral sphere. The DLC was soaking it all in with Clinton as its principal author, rebuilding the platform of the Democratic Party so completely around the teachings of the fucking Chicago school, it would be difficult to distinguish between Democrats and Republicans from that point forward on the vast majority of policy issues. There's no question this alignment would lead to the culture wars we live with today and the fracture within Congress under Newt Gingrich, an important player in our next chapter. 
with so much in common between the parties now. The Republicans had to find new ways to distinguish themselves and push the party even further to the right. But for the time being, the election of Bill Clinton in 1992 marked the official death of the New Deal and Great Society era in the United States. Reagan might have been pointing to the shining city on the hill, but it was Bill Clinton who showed us the way. The most important thing I want to leave you with today is that nothing is inevitable. We always have a choice. And in that spirit, here's your what-if moment for the day. They wonder why does Jesse run? Because they see me running for the White House? They don't see the house I'm running from? I have a story. I wasn't always on television. Writers were not always outside my door. When I was born late one afternoon, October 8th, in Greenville, South Carolina, no writers asked my mother her name. Nobody chose to write down our address. A mama was not supposed to make it. And I was not supposed to make it. You see, I was born a teenage mother who was born a teenage mother. I understand. I know abandonment and people being mean to you and saying you're nothing and nobody and can never be anything. I understand. Jesse Jackson is my third name. I'm adopted. When I had no name, my grandmother gave me her name. My name was Jesse Burns till I was 12. So I wouldn't have a blank space. She gave me a name to hold me over. I understand when nobody knows your name. I understand when you have no name. I understand. I wasn't born in the hospital. Mama didn't have insurance. I was born in the bed at house. I really do understand. Born in a three-room house. Bathroom in the backyard. Slop job by the bed. No hot and cold running water. I understand. Wallpaper used for decoration? No. For windbreaker. I understand. I'm a working person's person. That's why I understand you, whether you're black or white, I understand work. I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had a shovel program for my hand. My mother, a working woman. So many days she went to work early. Runs in her stockings. She knew better. But she rolled runs in her stockings so that my brother and I could have matching socks and not be laughed at at school. I understand. At three o'clock on Thanksgiving day, we couldn't eat turkey because mama was preparing somebody else's turkey at three o'clock. We had to play football to entertain ourselves. And then around six o'clock, she would get off the after this, the bus, and we would bring up the leftovers and eat our turkey, leftovers, the caucus, the cranberries, around eight o'clock at night. I really do understand. Every one of these funny labels they put on you, those of you who are watching this broadcast tonight in the projects, on the corners, I understand. Call you outcast, low down, you can't make it. You're nothing, you're from nobody. Subclass, underclass. When you see Jesse Jackson, when my name goes in nomination, your name goes in nomination. I was born in the slum, but the slum was not born in me. And it wasn't born in you, and you can make it. Wherever you are tonight, you can make it. Hold your head high. Stick your chest out. You can make it. It gets dark sometimes, but the morning comes. Don't you surrender. Suffering breeds character. Character breeds faith. 
In the end, faith will not disappoint. You must not surrender. You may or may not get there, but just know that you are qualified. You hold on and hold out. We must never surrender. America will get better and better. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. On the Lord night and beyond. Keep hope alive. I love you very much. Here endeth part two of the Clinton years. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings. Not a lot of musings for today. A few, but before we get there, why don't we just review the books that we've been going over to make sure that unfuckers know where to get them. 99, what do we have in our bookstore? Yeah, so for today's episode, we have Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality by Lily Geismer, Super Predator, Bill Clinton's Use and Abuse of Black America by Nathan J. Robinson, and of course, The Illusion of Free Markets by Bernard Harcourt. So I didn't have an opportunity to actually do this in the studio. But it's something that I'm thinking about putting together maybe after our vacation. But I I went down such a deep rabbit hole about Jesse Jackson because my impression of... Well, let me ask you this. Do you even have an impression of Jesse Jackson? No. That's so interesting to me. Absolutely. Basically nothing. So was it surprising to you? to know that he got 7 million votes in the primary and was like up until the convention could have been the nominee. Yeah, it was confusing. <laughs> right? I feel like it's, ah, this is such a privileged thing to say, at, meaning from a, a white person's standpoint. And I know this is the case because of a conversation I had that I'll, I'll reveal in one second, but your generation probably doesn't have much awareness of Jesse as a political figure, maybe as a as a an old civil rights leader like that. My guess is at least in the general awareness among millennials, probably not Gen Z, but among millennials is the idea that this man was important. He's been around for a very long time. Is that fair? Yes, I guess. I really I have almost no. He's a reverend. Yeah, that's about all I know. Okay, so my generation, as a white Northern person in a probably a more liberal part of the country, but definitely with some conservative influences growing up in the suburban part of New York, we were pretty much indoctrinated with the idea that Jesse Jackson was outmoded, outdated, marginal civil rights person who was an opportunist who built his legacy on being on the balcony when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and then playing that to the hilt and that he was a devious and scandalous person who had no business being in the political arena and was one step better maybe than Al Sharpton. So I'm being perfectly honest about the impression that was given among people my age that look like me that grew up in this area. And again, in a more liberal area. Now, interestingly, Jackson crushed in that primary in 88, crushed in the South. He was a very important figure, particularly among black Americans in the South, obviously. But he won a lot of white votes in the South as well because of the progressive economic vision that he was laying out, that when you go through it point by point is so eerie and so on point and relevant to today, even ahead of its time with respect to disability rights, with respect to certainly talking about equal pay, talking about poverty, I think was already a a very big part, certainly coming out of the, because he was one of the people that carried the mantle of the poor people's campaign because he was there for the latter part of Dr. King's life. 
So I called a good friend of mine who grew up in the South and we had a very long talk. And I think it's actually worth actually having it here and maybe bringing it in for for a post-show musings at the conclusion of all of this about the importance of Jesse Jackson as a political figure in the United States, not just as a reverend, not just as a member of the Southern Black Church movement, but as a real political figure. And he said he was probably the most important, we're the same age, he said he was probably the most important person in his political life and and his awareness as a young person. And he visited his college campus, I think, and he said, you wouldn't believe the number of people who registered to vote for the first time after he spoke on our campus. He was always in my life. He was always an enormous part of my life and said that the impression he knew somebody that knew both him and Dr. King very well that he grew up with was one of his mentors that said that Dr. King believed that Jesse was one of the people who would definitely be the future of his movement. So all of the things that were said about him at the time were kind of patently false. And it was just a, a, a narrative that was painted about him in the larger media ecosystem. There's no question he was an opportunistic figure. He made missteps along the way. Most famously, I think he casually referred to New York City as Jaime Town. And, and I'll, I'll go back and look up the context that that was set in. But it was like, one of these side remarks that he was making as a joke and it got picked up. And from that point forward, he couldn't step foot in New York, like legitimately for a while because everybody was so pissed off at him. He did have uh, relationship scandals, I think later in his career. But that moment, the 80s and the early 90s, I am embarrassed by how little I understood about his rise. Now, again, I revealed last week that Bill Clinton was my political awakening that moment in time. So 88 was still too early for me to give a shit about anything. In the 90s, I started to care very much about things, but not enough to go back and revisit like recent history because Jesse Jackson was so written off by that. He didn't even run in 92. He was so written off by the party at that point because the party had surged so far to the right. And eventually Jackson would even begin to align with the new Democrats just to stay active and politically relevant. But for a period of, let's say, 15 years or so, this man was a fucking giant in all politics in America. And listening to that, I can't tell you how many times now I've listened to his 88 convention speech, obviously for, for clipping this and for part of the show, but also just because I was mesmerized. People, again, people talk about Barack Obama's speech that at the convention that would set him up to become president. People talk about Mario Cuomo and his his amazing uh, convention speech that set him up to possibly theoretically be a Supreme Court justice if he ever had the opportunity. Like there were people who made their careers at the conventions and their speeches. But for my money, this speech is so far and away superior in every way, in content, in tone, in delivery and in practicality that I can't believe it's not talked about more. And I was I was almost upset at myself, but also I was just upset in general that he isn't considered more in, I think, the lexicon of great modern American political figures. Anyway. Did you did you get a chance yet to listen to that the the last part of the speech that we cut up? Not the whole thing. Not the whole thing? No. I can't wait for you to hear it in context. I can't wait, as we're obviously recording this before we give it to Manny, I can't wait to hear what he does with it. And Manny, please pop in and let me know, because you and I, again, are also of a similar age. I'm curious to, to understand what your impression, not today, but back in the day when we were growing up, what your impression of Jesse Jackson was as a political figure in the country. Hey, yeah, you know, that's interesting. Kind of like you, I wasn't totally connected yet to the going-ons of the political world in any great detail. I grew up around a lot of uh, African-American families, and, and I, so I was engaged in the conversations I knew about, even within the, the Black community, folks who would be 
who looked sideways at Jackson as, like you said, an opportunist. Uh, but then there were some people who were, you know, obviously very much supportive of, of him. I can't remember what my dad felt. My dad was a sociologist and, uh, and often a prophet uh, when it came to certain social phenomena. Uh, and I'm sure whatever he thought was right. And of course, I just adopted whatever he, th- he thought. But I think that my general feeling was that Jesse Jackson could indeed become the first black president. I think that was a clear possibility in in my mind, or at least in enough people around me's minds, that that's the impression that I ended up having. You know, and then there were people who thought that he helped set up MLK. So who knows? Unfuckers, you as well. Older, younger, wherever you are along the spectrum. And our international unfuckers as well. I'm also curious to understand what his, I guess, how big his influence carried outside of the country and and what the impression was of him growing up in other countries. So uh, please write in and let me know. That was, I think, my biggest takeaway. A lot of these details about Clinton's rise, I was sort of vaguely familiar with because I understood that they did come from somewhere when he actually became president. And part three, by the way, is going to really... The approach that I'm taking for part three, so everybody knows, is it's going to be much more specific about the fracture between Democrats and Republicans during that era as because Newt Gingrich came to power and that new wave of Republican that came to power that had to redefine itself against the norm, the new norms of the Democratic Party. And then also legislatively, what did Clinton champion carry across the line? What did he veto? What did he propose from the ground up that actually became law? And then obviously, what are we still living with today? And what were ultimately the consequences of those laws? So that's going to round us out for part three of the Clinton series. At some point, I think it would be great for us to put all three together and then redrop it as a just a full long ass episode on the Clinton era. Uh, But for now, we'll do it in three parts. And uh that's all I got for this week. 99, anything else that we need the unfuckers to know before we head into next week? Nope. All set. All set? Okay. Manny, appreciate you wherever you are. Looking forward to hearing the final result here. 99, um, I will see you hopefully next week. Right? As we round this out. No promises. In person? No promises, <laughs> I know. That leaves that I'm not, that makes it I know. seem really weird. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not dying. I just have COVID exposure potentially, so. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, so 99 is sequestering right now. So once again, we're apart, which you know I hate. Don't like being apart from 99. But we're trying to figure out as best we can. That's it for this week on Fuckers. We'll catch you for show notes in the middle of the week, and then we'll catch you for part three next week. You have an outro to do. I do? As always. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro Manny Faces. You gotta admit, I sound designed the shit out of this one. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful and exposed 99. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Mrs. Clinton. We should stay in touch. What's the best way to reach you? Email? Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. By the way, a couple people wrote in and said, hey, more love for Tom McGovern. So 99 are working on something to bring Tom McGovern out, bring him out from behind his uh, his little wall there and bring him into the fold a little bit more because he's such a talent. The show is hosted by Hope and distributed by the Rainbow Coalition. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. By the way, we're closing in on a thousand followers on Twitter, a thousand followers on Facebook. We got some action going on. It seems like that's beginning to amplify a little bit. People are getting more active. If you're on Facebook and you haven't joined the Unfuckers at All group, which is run by the Unfucking community, started by Bob Knutson, then please do. Please join in the conversation over there because we like eavesdropping. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. That's how we pay for this shit on fuckers. That's how we get it going. Thank you for everybody who contributes to the cause to help us grow the show. Because remember, we don't have billionaires supporting us because there should be no billionaires. 
But if one wants to, I'm not going to say no. Right. I mean, in this moment, I yeah, mean, a billionaire yeah, yeah. wants to cut us a check. If they want to not be a billionaire by giving us a lot of money. I will take that. Ooh, even better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, visit our book list. We talked about some of them just before at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. Get some native roasted coffee at unftr.com slash shop. That's another way that you can support this show is through our partnership with the native coffee traders on the Puspatuck Reservation. They make the most extraordinary coffee in the world. So if you drink coffee, all we're asking is that you drink their coffee because it goes to support the community members on the reservation and this show. That's a true win-win. That's the kind of entrepreneurial spirit I was talking about. <laughs> Read our essays on Substack at unftr.substack.com. Our Substack numbers are growing very, very rapidly. I'm so thrilled about that because it feels like a lot of people are, are going back into the archives to further their research, find the book love. So it's where we kind of record all of the notes and everything for and the essays that the, the shows are based on. And we're never going to charge for it. We're never going to charge for content, period. Everything that we do is supported by the unfucking community that gives us money for memberships, gives us tips at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR or buys the native roasted coffee so that everything can be free. No content is gated, especially on Substack where everybody thinks you got to pay for Substack. You don't have to pay for the Substack. UNFTR.substack.com. Come join the community and let us unfuck this republic together. 